Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So hello there and welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. As always, my name is Adam Burns, I'm your host for this episode and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing this weekend? You okay? Yeah, hello everyone. I'm uh, I'm doing well. Just uh, still, still sitting here digesting what has been a fantastic race. Absolutely, an unbelievable race of epic proportions. I mean, we've often complained that Formula 1 this season has been predictable, it's been very boring, by and large because of how good Mercedes have been, not that it's their fault, but that's just the nature of the sport these days. But today, all of the stars and planets and everything else just fell into line for what was anything but a great Grand Prix by all credits. I think it was one of the more memorable Grand Prix in recent years and was won by Pierre Gasly, of all people, the Alpha Tauri driver who we've often praised this season on this show since we started as a driver that has not necessarily reinvented himself, but has had these setbacks last year at Red Bull. It didn't work out for him one reason or another. He was a shadow of the driver that he is today. And of course, a year to the death of his best friend, Antoine Hubert, coming through a very, very crazy set of circumstances. And it all culminated in him winning the Italian Grand Prix for AlphaTauri, his first win of his young career, only 23 years of age, and AlphaTauri's second win in their history, 12 years uh, after the first win, their maiden victory under Sebastian Vettel, no less, in the same venue in the wet race that unfolded there. So first things first, Courtney, I mean, let's, let's try and explain for those that probably didn't see the race in full depth. How on earth did we get to a situation where we expected a Mercedes 1-2 and ended up with Pierre Gasly winning the Italian Grand Prix on merit, of course? Well, it all started um, with a smooth start by Lewis. And I was already excited because I saw um, the McLarens make a great start. We had Carlos Sainz in um, second with Lando third. He got past um, Valtteri Bottas. So already, it was already, there's already story brewing with this race then obviously like Lewis was just like running away with it wasn't I think he's like, almost um, 15 seconds clear then all of a sudden um, Kevin Magnussen um, pulled over to the side but he wasn't far away from the uh, the pit entry so a safety car um, a safety car occurred and 
usually everyone darts into the pits, don't they, to uh, to change tyres because it was a perfect time to to pit and go on to your second phase. And um, little did uh, the leader Lewis Hamilton notice that the pit lane was closed because of the position where Kevin Magnussen was. He went through. He missed a couple of lights that were showing on the left hand side. He pitted, and uh, well, the rest is history. He got a uh, a, a ten second stop go penalty. And then got a nasty crash by Charles Leclerc, which led to a red flag. So they started from a grid start again, didn't they, Adam? And, yeah. um, well, from then onwards, it, it adds up to about, or well, after the stop-go penalty, Lewis would have lost about 30 seconds. So he had to pretty much start right at the back, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. And this was the incredible part of the race. I mean, as Courtney already explained, the race started under fairly normal circumstances. Lewis Hamilton got away almost instantly. He's really nailed those starts. I mean, he's been quite used to starting on pole position this season. It's I think it's his sixth pole this season. I might be wrong in that. He's 94th pole position. I mean, I'd probably put money on Lewis Hamilton getting to 100 by the end of the season, the way this is going. He's certainly got enough races to do it. And he got away very well. Valtteri Bottas, in contrast, got away terribly. It was almost like Lewis started, and then a second later, Valtteri's like, right, I've got to go. And Valtteri's usually been very good with his starts, but this season, he's definitely lost that edge off the start line, and he got completely gazumped. He got swallowed up by Carlos Sainz, who just overtook him easy into turn one. Then he had Lando Norris to deal with all the way up the Curva Grande, and the Del Raggio chicane, where they went wheel-to-wheel with each other. Lando really got the shoulders out, muscled Bottas out of the way, to which he was then... Yeah, and it was great to see from Lando, really brave stuff, and it came off. Obviously, it's one of those incidents where you kind of hope that both guys hit each other tie to tie, and it's fine. Usually, in some cases, you may end up like what happened to Sebastian Vettel uh, two years ago, where he ended up getting spun around trying to do the same thing with Lewis Hamilton. But Lando got through, and then Bottas obviously lost more places to the likes of uh, Sergio Perez and even one of the Renaults, Daniel Ricciardo, pulling off one of his uh, late-breaker moves into Ascari, which was... Something we haven't seen very often from Ricardo of late, but it was still trademark move from him. And then, as you said, Courtney, as the race developed, 24 laps in, Kevin Magnussen with that issue that he had uh, with his engine, and uh, it blocked the front entrance to the pit lane, not directly, but enough to make it dangerous, hence why the safety car was called out. And then, as a result of this blockage, the pit lane was closed. Now, we weren't aware of this during the coverage at the time. It was only until Lewis Hamilton came in and everyone else stayed out, with the exception of Giovinazzi. And everyone was sort of scratching. Yeah. And we were all scratching our heads at this. We were thinking, why or why is Lewis pitting and nobody else is, with the exception of Giovinazzi? And then it dawned on us that uh, the race control had announced that the pit lane was closed. So they'd closed it from the start of the safety car period. So by which in large, Mercedes would have been aware of this. Lewis was aware. I mean, Mercedes definitely were aware because they told Bottas not to pit. And uh, Lewis did not notice the signs on the outside, on the LED boards, that the pit lane was closed. I think the first thing first we've got to talk about with this penalty for Lewis Hamilton is, do we think it was justified? Uh, Do we think that the lights were in the correct position? Or perhaps Lewis was given enough opportunity to see them? Because I think the question remains, Courtney, is that under normal racing conditions, at normal racing speed, the lights were on the left-hand side and the LED lights... Mm. And it was very difficult for Lewis to see when in normal racing conditions, when you're going through parabolic around 140 miles an hour, 
you're pulling 5G or five times the force of gravity on your neck. So you're really leaning to the right hand side to tuck it into the corner. You're not looking to the left hand side. You're looking more towards the right. And there wasn't really any lights on the way in. The only caveat to this is that Lewis was not traveling at full racing speed. He was slowed yeah, down because down. of the safety car. Obviously, they have to respect the Delta. And he could have definitely seen that on the left-hand side. And more to the point, Mercedes could have told him on the radio to stay out. But they didn't. They told him to come in. So, uh, unfortunately for Lewis, in my opinion, he may have felt disgruntled originally about this. But I think when he looks back on it, he'll probably think, well, he hasn't really got an argument in terms of uh, that penalty, I think it was probably a fair decision from the FA. And, and let's not forget, they did the same thing to Giovinazzi and gave him that right. stop-go penalty. So they were consistent. It wasn't like they penalised Lewis and Giovinazzi just got away with it. They penalised both drivers and uh, it cost Lewis the race that moment. Well, yeah, I did. I was, I was watching on and I thought, right, so Giovinazzi's got his. But then it just it, there was like, just like a long pause and then... There, there was nothing for about a good five, ten minutes. And then, like, as a Lewis Hamilton fan, like, I watched on, I just saw the graphic, Lewis Hamilton, 10 seconds. I just sat there, I was like, no, how's this going to go? <laughs> you know, how's this going to go? It's going to start off right at the back, right, right at the back. It's going to have to catch up 20 seconds. But but then I looked and I thought, and I thought I'm, I'm speaking as a Lewis fan, I thought, he's so far ahead in the championship. The championship itself for non-Lewis fans has been... So bloody boring, hasn't it? Like, I can imagine, I, I imagine, this is how I felt during Sebastian Vettel's dominance. It must have been so boring for non-Lewis Hammond fans. It looked like he's peeling away yet again. I bet there was a lot of sighing going on. People tucked on their sofas, arms crossed, bored. Then all of a sudden, this has occurred. And I, and I just remember seeing, I saw Lewis Hammond and the, when the graphic come up. And I just looked at those names at the front. And I thought... I personally thought, I thought Carlos Sainz was going to do it. I thought it was going to be the day that Carlos Sainz gets that win. McLaren finally get a win after since 2013, if I'm staying corrected. Uh, it was the Bra- Brazilian, Grand, yeah, Brazilian Grand Prix in 2012, it was. Jensen Button was the last driver to win for McLaren so many years ago. And now he's doing a punditry with Sky F1 at the actual yeah. race today. So, um, But yeah, uh-huh. yeah, you're absolutely right, Courtney. Um I mean, you know, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but you're mentioning how mundane, I suppose, and tepid this championship battle has been. And by and large, that's not necessarily Lewis or Mercedes' fault. Unfortunately, we're in a position where, because of what's happened with Ferrari over the winter, which has detrimented their performance massively, uh, the largest I've seen in a long time, and... Red Bull really just not able to live with Mercedes unless Max Verstappen is on top form and everything falls it their way. It has created a situation where we're relying heavily on Valtteri Bottas to produce the goods and challenge Lewis race after race, as Nico Rosberg did a few years ago. The problem is, I think other than Austria, we've said week after week that Valtteri, con- sorry, excuse me, that Valtteri continues to make mistakes that cost Mm -hmm. him these races. And more often than not, they always seem to happen at the start. And that's happened once again. So I think the question remains, Valtteri has a contract for next season. And I'm pretty sure Mercedes are fairly happy with what he's doing. But are we starting to see the first real big red flags around Valtteri's uh, capabilities of not only 
challenging Lewis Hamilton, but being able to put that Mercedes very much where it should be race after race because it's not it's not even a case of him challenging Lewis. Sometimes he struggles to finish second or on the podium. Right. So here's the thing. Okay, so Valtteri's going to be Lewis's biggest challenger given the pace of the Mercedes. Okay, Lewis has started at the restart at the back of the grid. 20 seconds behind the rest of the grid. This was a real opportunity. Now, I understand the car might have had slight damage, but Valtteri had a real opportunity. If he was really that competitive and really in, up for this championship, he would have been trying to get part. I know Lando's a very good defensive driver, but making risky moves. He's at this point in the championship now. He needs to take risks. And he had an opportunity to gain some real points or even challenge for the win. In that position, he didn't get past Lando. And it turned out that uh, at the end of the race, Lewis caught up, made some overtakes, my ad that Valtteri couldn't make, made some overtakes, and he ended up getting the fastest lap. So Valtteri ended up finishing fifth. Correct me if I'm wrong. Valtteri was fifth. Lewis was seventh with the fastest lap. So he got another point there. So Valtteri's gone from a position where he could have gone on to make a, to take a big chunk out of that championship championship league that Lewis had to barely making any and we're another race down he's going to start running out of races so I feel this is a defining point for Valtteri this season and this also had that Max Verstappen broke down didn't he as well that was another factor so despite the pain that Lewis went through with that penalty he's barely suffered from it it just seems that everything just despite the, the, the couple of roads that he's made with um, with dashboard lights this season even on a bad day, Adam, it just seems that things go well for Lewis. But for Valtteri, this just comes to prove, and it's been a personal opinion of mine anyway, I, I, I feel it's time for George Russell to be in that team. I don't know about you. It's, it's, it's a shame to see George Russell struggling that Williams, where I feel we could actually do a decent job in that mark. It's the same old enigma with George Russell. We sort of ask this question, is he ready for a seat of that magnitude? And I think... When you look at the performance of someone like Lando Norris, who's in the same cohort as him, driving very, very well now, uh, got come fourth place today, a very, very solid drive. Perhaps if he was a bit more fortunate, he might have come third if it weren't for Lance Stroll receiving that free pit stop under red flag conditions. He might have got another podium. And we look at George Russell in the same class as Lando, maybe slightly even better given their F2 campaigns, but that was yep. two years ago. And the question for George is... There's no intermediate seat he can move into to prepare him better for a Mercedes. It's not like football where you look at a manager who's managed a relegation club, kept them up. They make the move to a club that's on the fringes of Europe to see how they cope with more pressure, more money in that before they prove their worth to see if they're ready for a top job to compete for league titles. In Formula One, there are similar opportunities to drivers and George Russell would probably like an opportunity at the team like a racing point who would seem like the natural progression to the Mercedes in a way that Haas would be the next step to Ferrari or Alfa Tauri is to Red Bull. Unfortunately for George, this this opportunity doesn't exist for him. This pathway doesn't exist. It's literally from the bottom team of the grid all the way to the very top. And that comes with added pressures and expectation. And in George's case, as much as I believe he's capable, you can't really make a fair assessment on his performances in that Williams car other than what he's done in qualifying. And unfortunately for George, qualifying isn't enough for me to convince me of 
whether or not he can deliver for Mercedes week by week. Now, I say that, but I also have the opinion that George Russell, I think he is ready for that job. So everything I've just said now, you guys might hear that and think, well, you're saying he's not ready, you're saying he is ready. Make up your mind, Dad, what you're saying. I just think that it's a very hard decision Mercedes have to make. And I think if George was driving in a racing point rather than a Williams and battling for points and potentially podium positions, I think that decision would have been made by now and he probably would already be touted for that Mercedes seat. He just hasn't had the opportunity to be fast-tracked in the way that Lando has, Albon, Charles Leclerc as well. You know, all of these drivers that have the seat and then they can jump straight into the big car. So hopefully for George, that opportunity comes soon. But you're right, I think Valtteri is running out of time. And I think first things first, we have to say, wasn't it great for once to see... Lewis in the fastest car F1 has ever seen, and he and he did that by um, setting the all-time fastest lap in qualifying on Saturday, yep. a one eighteen eight, which beat Kimi Raikkonen's all-time record for Ferrari, and also Valtteri Bottas beat that earlier. So that you know that's an achievement in its own right. But wasn't it great to see Lewis come through the field, you know, dicing with some of these cars, making those overtakes, showing what he can do, and it wasn't easy. The Mercedes have proven in re- previous years to be difficult. Uh, overtaking in traffic and it was definitely apparent there but it just highlights as you mentioned before Courtney the problems that Valtteri Bottas has had in the Mercedes and it always seems to be issues that Lewis seems to just not have to worry about too much he just clears traffic okay and you're right despite having that 30 second deficit very very nearly caught up to Valtteri Bottas you could argue in another six or seven laps he might have been up there with him and Daniel Ricciardo, that battle for fifth and sixth place. So, well, that's yeah, yeah. that's the thing. He was um, Valtteri was complaining about the engine modes because obviously with the party mode being taken away, they have to stick to the same engine mode. Not on one occasion did you hear Lewis complaining about the engine mode, mm. and Lewis was not only at the front; he was coming charging through the field. So Lewis has been in two different situations in one race and didn't hear him complain about the engine modes. Yeah, Valtteri, Valtteri was getting stuck behind and he was complaining complaining about the car. And uh, if that's, that's, that's when it starts, though, because we've seen it. We've seen it with, with Gasly. We've seen it with Albon, obviously, both at Red Bull. When they start complaining, when you start seeing a whinging about the car whilst their teammates excelling, history suggests that it doesn't end well. No, and uh, I, I think on the evidence that we've seen already, perhaps this is not going to be any different in this case for Valtteri Bottas. I mean, we wish him well, but week after week, we're starting to see more flaws and more chinks in his arsenal, if you like, and or, or armour, I should say. And uh, it's not getting any easier for him at this point in time. But I think we should move back, obviously, to the big, big story. Of course, we've gone a bit sidetracked with it, but Pierre Gasly, as I said, the race winner in the Italian Grand Prix, his maiden victory in Formula 1 in unprecedented circumstances, an incredible drive and performance from him. Just a few stats I want to share with you guys, just to show how significant this race win is for Formula 1. I mean, Pierre Gasly himself, the first French winner of a Formula 1 race since 1996, when Olivier Panis, who uh, shares a birthday with me, actually, so uh, last week it was, so happy birthday to Olivier. Um, uh, Interesting little factoid there, whenever you look on the internet and see who shares a birthday with you, I found out Olivier Panis shares one with me. So yeah, happy birthday, Olivier. Um, He won for the Ligier team, which was, uh, some of you might remember more, as the Prost team um, from 97. But he won it for Ligier in Monaco. That was a strange race. I think only three cars finished in that race. That was an absolute mental race in Monaco. Um, 
AlphaTauri themselves, their second win in Formula One, if you include the Toro Rosso time, as they were rebranded this year as AlphaTauri, but their first win since 2008 at the same venue with Sebastian Vettel. So 12 years to that race, incredible win for them. And uh, first time that we've had a winner in the Turbo Hybrid era since 2014 outside the top three teams, believe it or not. So we've had this uh, for seven seasons now. We've had this hybrid era. This is the first time a driver not competing for Ferrari, Mercedes or Red Bull have won a Grand Prix since um, Australia in 2013 as well, which was uh, any guesses who that might have been, Courtney? Did you say did you say 2013? Yes, Australia 2013 was the last time we had a race Australia. winner outside the top I three think teams. I might know. Go on. Right, There's going to be a dramatic pause, and then you're going to tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Okay. Kimi Raikkonen for Lotus. Yes, yes, very, very yeah. good. <laughs> yes, Kimi for Lotus in 2013, uh, the winner of the Australian Grand Prix, the opening round, was the last winner of a Grand Prix that wasn't driving for the top three teams, except for today, where Pierre Gasly did that for Alpatari. It was also the first podium without any of the big three since Hungary in 2012. And uh, just for those of you wondering who that was, Hamilton, believe it or not, was the winner of that race in the McLaren team. Imagine calling them not a big team anymore. It's crazy how Formula 1 has changed. And of course, the two Lotus drivers, Kimi Raikkonen and Romain Grosjean, were second and third in that race. And... Uh, the average age of the podium, Courtney, was 23 years of age today with Whoa. Pierre Gasly winning, uh, Carlos Sainz, the oldest driver out of the three. I think he's 25 and Lance Stroll, the youngest of the three. I don't know if that is the youngest podium ever in Formula One. I'd have to I'm check that. It's certainly up there. I mean, I'm just thinking back to the early days where Vettel and Hamilton were sharing a podium from 2010 or 2009 where they might have just eclipsed that depending on who joined him on the podium but it's definitely one of the youngest podiums and I mean definitely Pierre and Carlos Sainz and Lance Stroll another good race from him but it's so good to see that despite all of the times we say well it's boring or we need someone to spice up the action that F1 can on occasion produce an incredibly strange crazy race like this one I mean it's got hallmarks of the 97 uh, European Grand Prix or the 95 Italian Grand Prix, funny enough, where Johnny Herbert won, where he had so many strange incidents. And, uh, I mean, Johnny was quite famous for winning those kind of races. As I said, those yeah, two right yeah. mentioned, he won them both. Um, but it's just so great to see for the sport. Formula One really needed a race like this. I think given oh. everything that it's been through this past year with COVID and Mercedes, you know, dominating the sport, people saying it's boring and all the controversy and everything else here at Monza, it's so nice given that how bad things have been for Ferrari, for the Italian Tifosi, that they can still enjoy a result like that for a team like Alfa Tauri, who are an Italian-based team as well. So they still had the Italian national anthem. I suppose the only downside for this win for Pierre Gasly is that he was not able to embrace and enjoy it in front of the Tifosi that I'm pretty sure would have sung his praises today under the circumstances in their droves. So, I mean, that's the only downside I could think of for this race. Well, it is, it is overall a win-win story for Formula One, you know, not only in a sporting sense, but in a human sense. So, it's, it's by far the most spiciest race of the season so far. 
you know, he had pretty much everything you could ask for in a in a race apart from rain, maybe. But in terms of a dry race, couldn't get much better. And also on a human level, the story behind it, seeing Pierre Gasly, you know, a man that had, this time last season just lost his seat at Red Bull and one of his best friends, to see him at the top, underdog story. And there was one moment that really stuck with me was um, after the podium ceremony, the other drivers and the and the other people up on the podium left, and he just sat there on the uh, on his podium step with his with his champagne, and it was it was just a poignant moment, and it was beautiful to see. Hmm. And that's the thing with sport; it isn't just the actual sporting moments; it's a human element of it. And I love to see stories like that, and and, and it's stories like this that engages fans with the sport or brings new fans in. It's races like these are, that are good for Formula One, like overall. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, and. For me, it's a great point that you've that you've made about the human element that Formula One can have. I mean, we talk about the story of Pierre Gasly over the past year, as you're right. As we mentioned before, losing his best friend Antoine Hubert, losing his seat at Red Bull almost in the same weekend. And those sorts of situations, you would never wish those upon anybody in no. Formula One or any walks of life. And you almost your heart goes out to someone like Pierre because of what he's had to go through. And it's destroyed careers. It's destroyed the mental strength or character of lesser drivers and lesser people in other sports who have had to deal with that level of adversity. It doesn't get any worse than that. But in Pierre's case, he obviously took time over that period to reflect and he just assessed his situation and thought, well, it could be worse. I could be out of Formula One. I'm still got a seat even if it is back where it all started in AlphaTauri, or which was Toro Rosso, of course. And race after race following that demotion, we started to see the real Pierre Gasly start to come back bit by bit. He gets stronger and stronger after every race. And of course, this season, we've often sung his praises, but he has been, without doubt, one of the best drivers this season, certainly in my top three this season. And I couldn't have thought of a better person to win today under the circumstances than Pierre. I'm really, really happy for him. I was thinking that too, you know. I was actually thinking that. It would have been nice to have seen um, one of the McLarens win. But in terms of being a neutral fan, again, looking at the human element, the story behind this man, it was fantastic to see him at the top of that podium. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think for the sport as well, the sport needed something like this. After everything it's been going through, it needed a day to celebrate something. You know, you always... I don't know how people are in terms of their religious beliefs or divine intervention or anything else, but sometimes you have days like these where you just think there's a power or something cosmic that we're not aware of or can even begin to interpret that plays the cards where they may lie in the exact place to present opportunities for people like that under those circumstances to have a day in the spotlight, have a day where it all just falls your way and you end up with a result like this. is absolutely fantastic. And I know people will say, oh, well, this is what reverse grid races will bring for Formula 1. Well, let me be the first person to say, no, you would, if reverse grid races were a regular thing in Formula 1, you'd get very sick of them very quick. The reason why they work in junior categories is because all the cars have equal performance and it makes it a bit of fun. The idea of reverse grid races in Formula 1 is to try and create more results like this, but it's not, it's more artificial, it's not authentic, it's not like, 
oh, you know, you could stick Lewis Hamilton in the eighth, but he's in the same car as everyone else to see the best driver win. You're never going to get that in Formula One. You're always going to have a parity in quality and performance because of, that's how the sport works. And that's what we love about the sport. You know, it would be boring if we try to manufacture races like this on a regular basis. People would just not enjoy it. You know, there can be a thing as too random. So, no, I don't accept the reverse grid races idea. I think perhaps there's something as a one-off event, then, yeah, sure. Yeah. Like a Macau race or the Indy 500, stuff like that, a one-off thing. They're great because no one wants to watch those races all year round, but they're great as a standalone event. So maybe that's something Formula 1 could consider for fun or, you know, for something with championship points. I don't know. I'm not the guy making the rules, but that's what they should be doing, not something to on a regular basis to try and create these kind of races because they will get tedious very, very quickly. But moving back to, you know, Pierre Gasly, what an incredible drive from him. And I really hope that wherever he moves next, whether that be back in the Red Bull seat, and I'm pretty sure now he has to be the red hot favourite to go into that seat if Red Bull decides to replace Albon. Not next season, of course, the season afterwards, because Albon has that seat for next season, I believe. So it will have to wait another year. But if Gasly does go back into that Red Bull seat, I really do hope that he can take everything he's learned from this and that Red Bull can really get behind him rather than how it all unfolded before because that was not fun to watch. And as good as Verstappen is, I don't think it's really good for the sport to have a team like Red Bull always seem to have the one driver fighting the front. It's all, yeah, ever since Ricardo, they've always had that problem. And I think Gasly's proven now he's capable of making... I mean, he's outperforming at least one Red Bull in almost every other race, in a weaker car. So there's no reason for me to feel that he'd be incapable to do it. Of course, it's a much more difficult tr- car to drive, but I think he's proven his metal now in, in this sport, and I think he's capable of doing it. Oh, well, I'll finish 15th. It was a terrible, yeah. That. It was a hard weekend for Red Bull, and of course we'll discuss that briefly in the second part, but uh, I think it's a good opportunity, actually. We're nearly half an hour in to actually break halfway through. So uh, sit back, guys. Obviously, you know, Get comfortable, grab yourself a drink and that, and we will see you in part two of the DNF1 F1 podcast. So welcome back to part two of the DNF1 F1 podcast, guys. So obviously in part one, we were reviewing the race and talking about how incredible it was for someone like Pierre Gasly to finally get his maiden winning Formula One thoroughly well-deserved. And I don't think I'm the only one in saying that hopefully he can continue on with this and see where he goes when he makes that next step up, wherever that may be, will it be Red Bull or elsewhere? We'll have to wait and see. So moving from Pierre Gasly now, his heroics in that race, let's talk about Carlos Sainz and McLaren. So McLaren had a, otherwise a fairly spectacular race, all things considered. They, right. they will probably feel a little disappointed. I'm sure Carlos will, that he wasn't able to get the win. He was so, so close. Perhaps another lap or two, he might have been able to catch Gasly and overtake him. He was very close. But otherwise, second for Carlos Sainz and for Philando Norris. That's a he very, very good result. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, their best result in the Turbo Hybrid era, by far. And, uh, I mean, all things considered, it's probably very well deserved. I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that McLaren didn't deserve that sort of result on merit. I don't think I'm wrong in saying that they absolutely deserved that. They were very quick in qualifying. They did a great job getting, um, as I said, Carlos got into third and qualifying. Lando a little bit further behind, but a great start from him. But they had the pace all the way That's through right. to really get that kind of result. 
even though we had the safety car and the red flag. If anything, the red flag probably hindered Carlos a little bit and prevented him from getting that win. Because before the actual safety car, they, they were in second and third, and they were comfortable. Valtteri was behind, just behind, a, kind of in and out of a second behind Lando, but Lando had him covered, and it, it, and it came to prove in the second phase. So McLaren were comfortable in second and third. I wasn't entirely worried they were going to lose those podium places. Hmm. So, yeah, it must be mixed emotions for McLaren. So coming into the weekend, they would have beaten your hand off for a second and a fourth. But given the circumstances, that was a real opportunity for them to possibly get a win. But let's not forget, Carlos Sainz wasn't um, wasn't actually that far behind Pierre at the end. He no, just, yeah. He just ran out of laps. Literally probably another lap or two, and he probably would have made that overtake. And... Uh, it bodes well for McLaren, given the uh, lack of changes in the regulations for next year, and obviously certain elements of the car development is going to be frozen for next season. It does bode well that they're going to be using a Mercedes engine next year to okay. give them that extra bit of oomph, even though the Renault cars were the ones topping the speed track, the Renault powered cars, I should say. The Mercedes ones, not so much, but uh, it does bode well for McLaren, given where they're going. They're certainly moving in the right direction. We've said that for a while now. And I think a word on Carlos Sainz, because... It's a very difficult time for Carlos because he's got a second place today. His best result in Formula 1, of course. He got a podium in Brazil last season, but he's got his second one today. And Carlos has been very, very good the last couple of races in particular. His form has really shot up. Of course, Lando's been doing well as well. But it's fair to say that Carlos is definitely the, the McLaren driver in form out of the two. Yeah. And... Um, how, what must he be going through? Because, of course, he'll be a little bit disappointed today. He felt that he could have won that race. And perhaps if we didn't have the red flag and, you know, on top of all that, he might well have done. And, um, you know, having to take that time to overtake Lance Stroll, who did get the benefit of that free pit stop to put on the soft tyres. But Carlos is going from a car at the moment that's challenging for big points and potential podiums on the right day to what seemed to be a dream move. But in fact, it's going to be a very difficult transition year for him at Ferrari, given how far that they are languishing behind. Um, they were abs- I mean, despite the double retirements they had today, this was the first time that Ferrari have failed to qualify into the top 10 at the Italian Grand Prix since 1984, I believe. And after that, their race pace was not very, very good either. Even though Charles Leclerc got into a good position before his crash, thankfully he's okay. But otherwise, what is Carlos Sainz going to be thinking about, knowing he's moving from uh, McLaren doing so well to Ferrari, who are struggling, for lack of a better word? Well, he's, uh, particularly if McLaren do well with a Mercedes engine, it's going to be, in principle, at this point, it seems like a step back. So it could well be a very frustrating year for Carlos. But I suppose if you could take any positives out of that, it could give him an opportunity to settle into the team, establish his name within the team in a pressure in an in a environment that won't be high pressure, because he isn't going into as much as I'm sure he'd love to be challenging for podiums, wins, and the championship, because that's what every driver wants to do. I suppose the small crime crime of comfort would be that he will be given an opportunity to establish himself in Ferrari without that high pressure environment, because if he goes into Ferrari next season, they were the fastest or second fastest team, and Charles Leclerc is winning races, and he's languishing like fifth, sixth, like sometimes you see with Albon or Red Bull. You're already under pressure, particularly at an environment like Ferrari, we've discussed many times on this podcast. In a strange way, 
this could be an opportunity for Carlos to settle in and be comfortable within that team before the big regulation change in 2022. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I was thinking the same thing along those lines where Carlos would probably prefer a transition year where it's a lot easier rather than being the regular pressure cooker that Ferrari is when they're doing well. But as we've seen from Carlos in previous years at McLaren and also at Renault, he's been part of projects where he has been able to extract probably the blueprint or maximum that you can out of a car like that. So it might serve Ferrari well to have two guys. I mean, we know Leclerc is doing everything he can, and if Leclerc is struggling, we know that car is bad. I mean, Sebastian Vettel's issues are a separate thing altogether, but having Carlos Sainz on board will be invaluable for Ferrari, and I think the experience he's had fighting in the midfield with McLaren and trying to pick up every possible point you can as a positive result can only help them. So hopefully it will give them a much better driver, and if the car is much more competitive in the reset of regulations for 2022, as we hope that it will be, we're not expecting any uh, miracles for 2021, it's only going to help him and Ferrari. So for his case, today would be a great day, although perhaps it might take him a couple of days to sort of get over the potential uh, loss of a race win, which is something that he's never had before either, of course, so it's a very difficult thing. But you can see of late, Carlos is really starting to find that level that I think Ferrari were hoping that they would see when they signed him earlier this year. So moving on from McLaren, otherwise a fantastic result for them, of course, getting on the podium, second place for Sainz and fourth for Lando, another strong drive from Lando Norris. We'll move over to Racing Point. Now, believe it or not, Courtney, we've talked about Racing Point potentially getting a podium, but as I said on this podcast, I don't believe they've got a podium this season until today. I think this is the first podium that they've got with Lance Stroll, who, for all, you know, lack of a better way of putting it, played his cards absolutely spot on. I think, you know, he had a very strange start to the race. He did get bogged down a little bit on the uh, back end of the top 10. But obviously when the safety car came out, he didn't pit uh, when the pit lane was opened eventually. Not obviously when Lewis pitted, it was reopened and everyone made their stops. He didn't, he stayed out. But then we had the red flag with Charles Leclerc and that created the opportunity where Lance Stroll running in second place was able to get a free pit stop. Under the rules, red flag regulations, you are allowed a free pit stop or to repair damage on your car, um, including changing tyres and everything else, which allowed him to put on a fresh new set of tyres without making that stop. So, in effect, when the race got underway, he had the net race lead with, of course, Lewis Hamilton having to serve his penalty. How would Lance Stroll be feeling in your mind, Courtney? Because he responded after the race saying it was really a poor getaway from the second start of the race that cost him the race win today because he had a very realistic chance of winning today. Again, I think he's another driver that if he was offered a podium at the start of the day, he would have taken it. And, you know, particularly at the end of a race and the adrenaline still, like, slowly leaving the body, um, you're going to assess every little thing and and self-critique because that's what Formula 1 is all about. It's all about extracting everything from yourself to be able to win. But I think, when I think of Lance Joe, I think about his story this season and has been the immense pressure he's been under, given the uncertainty over Sergio Perez, and he's been criticised so much. You know, a lot of it's been said that he's only there because of his dad. Well, he didn't end up on that podium because of his dad. I don't I don't think he's, his dad offered a car to pay the FIA to put everything in place for him to be on that podium, so... 
he'd done that all his, on his own credit. And yet again, we've, we've, again, it's nothing we've discussed. At least several times this season, he's been proving that that was wrong. And today, yet again, it's another example. And I think it's time that the general fan base accept Lance Stroll as a solid F1 driver. Hmm. I think that's a, no, absolutely fair assessment. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, Lance has had his difficulties in his days at Williams. It did take time for things to sort of fall into place. And he has had to shake off this tag of a young lad who's in the sport based off of his dad's fortune. Now, for me, I don't agree with that statement at all. Of course, every driver in Formula One has their own way in. And all of them will have backing, financial backing of some level, whether you're, you know, your dad is a billionaire uh, owns many businesses, successful stuff like that. Or in other cases, if your name is Mick Schumacher, who won the F2 feature race, who, who's now uh, a few second runner, second place in the F2 championship and going along very, very nicely. You know, you're always going to have those tags or everything that people will attribute to as how you get yourself exposure into the sport or get into Formula One. In Lance's case, obviously he's had his route in, but he's hardly been five seconds off the pace or languishing behind causing accidents or incidents. He's been a very solid driver who year after year has made incremental improvements to his driving and for lack of a better way of putting it, deserves his way place in Formula One and he's doing more than just that. He's got his second podium for in, in his career, got his other one in Baku, I think back in 2017, if I remember rightly. And, and he was very nearly second place. He got beat over the line by Valtteri Bottas in a drag race, but he got his second third place. Again, he will feel disappointed today that perhaps he could have won this race. He certainly was in the right position. But again, if you, you're right, Courtney, if you'd have offered him third place, the first podium for racing point this season, he would have certainly took it. So a great drive from him, great performance, and he's doing very, very well. And speaking of racing point, we should briefly mention that following the race, they have formally withdrawn their appeal related to the penalty sanctions they received regarding the break ducks controversy that there were found to be carbon copies, mind the pun, of the uh, W10, the Mercedes last season, which they did not run last season. Of course, they had the front brake ducks, but not the rear ones that they put on this year's car and were deemed to be illegal. Now, of course, the penalty that they originally were given by the FIA was 15 points for the constructors, 7.5 per car, and €400,000 fine, which they've decided they're accepting, and that's fine. And in addition to this, Ferrari, who were the only team remaining that were appealing for a more harsher penalty of more restrictions on copying cars and stuff, etc., for, for future seasons, have now withdrawn their appeal as well. So as far as everything is concerned, that episode has finally been put to bed now so hopefully that will be the last we hear of it yes exactly hopefully the last that we hear of it so um and i think we move on now we've got to mention ferrari briefly i mean it was a dismal qualifying performance for them at monza the worst i said since the mid 80s and it was a terrible race i mean sebastian vettel six laps in had the uh as he put it brake failure he said it was an issue with a brake line which thankfully at a track like monza he realized it um going through turn one where there was that runoff area and the polystyrene boards, which he completely destroyed, which was quite funny. But thankfully, you know, he was in a place where he could slow that car down with the aero without any barriers or anything, get it to the pits. And Charles Leclerc, who had a terrible accident coming out of Parabolica, who seemed to have lost it when he got on the throttle on the outside. So, um, an otherwise very disappointing day for Ferrari, probably one of the oh. darkest days in its yeah. history. 
I feel that Ferrari looks. Um, it might sound extreme, but I think Ferrari looked like a joke today. Mm. I'd go that far. They looked like an absolute joke. Cause not only were they slow in terms of raw play, uh, pace, the, the, you know the mistakes that were happening with like with with well Vettel. Like, just seeing Vettel go through, it, it, it wasn't nice to see anyway because you don't you don't want to see a brake failure. But like the way they went off, both went off the track. It, it was it was almost comical. Because mm. it was obviously it's obviously down to the floors of the car. I'm pleased that Charles, because I was worried about Charles at one point, it looked pretty bad. Yeah. But not only were they struggling in raw pace, it's just simple things that are going wrong with that car. They're showing how flawed that car is in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, literally when it rains, it pours on Ferrari. Yeah. But um. Yeah, no, that, that that's absolutely right. I, I can't... As a Ferrari fan, it, I've never remembered Ferrari to be this bad. I mean, I know they had issues in the early 90s, but it was... As I said, they lost performance bit by bit. It wasn't this large a gulf between them and the leading cars in such a short space of time. It's it's just really bad. I mean, we're going to talk about more about why Ferrari is struggling in next week's episode when we're covering the Mugello Grand Prix, which is the, the F1 1000th Scuderia Ferrari anniversary race or something like that. I can't even remember what the title is. But next week's race in Mugello, it's the 1000th race for Ferrari in Formula 1. And uh, I think probably given the circumstances, not one that they're going to be looking to celebrate with too much aplomb other than looking back on the history of the Scuderia, which, let's face it, is... Uh, uncomparable to anything else we've seen in Formula 1 and probably almost any other sport. So hopefully for Ferrari that the race performance won't be as bad as we were expecting. But moving on to the Mugello predictions, I think we're going to cover this briefly because I'm aware of the sort of time on this episode. I don't want to run too long. But in this race, we haven't really had a proper F1 race at Mugello. This is going to be the first one that we've had. We've had test sessions before, so there is a history on this track. Ferrari may have an added advantage going to the data that they would have collated on this track and the history of this circuit being a Ferrari-owned circuit. Are we expecting any difference to the norm or are we expecting another crazy race for this one, Courtney? I would love another crazy race, but I'd, I'd be surprised if we got one. It's a completely different circuit to Monza. Well, in terms of Mercedes, they just seem to dominate wherever they go. And I, I, I feel that... The changes with engine modes is only going to make them stronger in the races, and I think it showed, particularly with Lewis. Hmm. I think they can just trick away even easier in the race. Um, qualifying might be closer, so it'd be interesting to see how that goes. It might have been track specific, seeing how far Mercedes were. So there's that, but I feel Mercedes be the strongest, but it's, it's everyone behind them. I think Red Bull may be stronger, but it's, I think my main intrigue this season is the midfield. And I think you've got to put Ferrari into that. So with Ferrari, will Ferrari make it into Q3 and get some solid points? I think that will be their aim going into this race. Well, it absolutely has to be. I mean, they yeah. haven't made it into Q3 in the last two races, which is uh, shambolic. Or even, you, I mean, last week in Belgium, the biggest celebration was that Ferrari both made it out of Q1. I mean, that's ridiculous that's to think, of, considering where they were a year ago, to think that they were going, you know, struggling to make it out of Q1 is ridiculous. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to spoil this for a lot of guys, but Mugello Circuit is designed to be a test circuit. So you may find similar hallmarks to the French Grand Prix and also the Spanish Grand Prix. Not to that level, but it's going to be a harder track to overtake than Monza is, for example, and some would like. So I'm expecting a strong performance from Mercedes. I think Mercedes are one of these brilliant teams where when they have this 
issue or in one race, they bounce back almost immediately. And sometimes with more ferocity than the previous races, it's almost like, you know, um, kicking a lion when it's down and then all of a sudden it just comes up and takes over. That's literally Mercedes. I've never seen anyone do that like them. So I'm expecting a response from them. I'm expecting a response from Lewis and Valtteri maybe, but uh, I think we'll probably go for the normal podium, I would say, and go Lewis, Hamilton and Verstappen for the top three. Yeah, because Max will be hungry again because it was a very disappointing weekend for Red Bull. So yeah, you're going to have not only an angry Mercedes, you're going to have an angry Red Bull as well. Yeah, very That's surprising. Right, yeah. Doesn't it? An angry Bolt. <laughs> yeah, no, very surprising. Whereas, yeah, no, terrible. But yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to put the sound effect in there for the bet. I'm just going to roll with that. But uh, yeah, very difficult week for Red Bull. They just uh, didn't seem to have the pace for whatever reason. And uh, Max had problems with his car, and uh, that took him out of the race. And uh, it's a shame because he might have been able to pick up something from it. And Alex Albon. God, man, everything that can go wrong for Alex. I mean, his pace wasn't there. He had that penalty at the start with that collision earlier on and uh, obviously just about managed to avoid an accident at turn one of the first laps. So a uh, very, very difficult weekend for Red Bull, but I'm sure they will respond in Klein in the next race. So the final part of this episode of the podcast, big news regarding, as you know, quickly just mentioned, obviously Renault, changing uh, being rebranded to alpine racing for next season so i'm briefly going to go over this guys i'm not going to discuss it too much but alpine racing are like a a sister brand if you like for the renault team like a french racing company who have ties with renault racing and cyril abitable of course the team principal at renault forefront in this change where it's going to be rebranded as alpine racing team they have a world endurance championship racing series if you are interested in what they're all about and it's going to rebrand the color of the cast it's going to be the blue and black livery that they don with the tricolor French flag and also on the front and at the back as well. So it looks like Fernando Alonso is going to be driving a blue Renault car, if you like, after all in 2021. So that'll be interesting to see. So we've now got Alpine Racing, Alfa Romeo, Alfa Tauri. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think David Croft, the Sky Sports F1 commentator, is going to have a field day getting all of those out. Hopefully for his sake, they don't all end up on the same piece of track at the same time. That'll be fun to commentate over. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, yes, so the final part of this episode now. So obviously we want to pay massive homage to this very, very sad news that Williams Racing, Claire Williams and Sir Frank Williams are now removing themselves. They're stepping down from their posts as the uh, you know team owners and team principals of the Williams Racing team now. Effective from t- uh, the Monday the 7th of September to be replaced by new investors and new owners, Dalton Capital, who are keeping the Williams name. But above all else, what an incredible history this Williams team has. And it's such a shame for it to end in the manner that it is. And they will certainly be missed. But I'm just going to run through some of the career stats for Williams team. So obviously, originally founded by Frank Williams as Frank Williams Racing back in uh, the 1960s. Uh, 1966 I remember if I remember rightly 54 years ago but obviously 43 years as William Racing back in 1977 and obviously their career stats was follows 739 races only Ferrari have competed in more 114 wins 312 podiums 128 pole positions 133 fastest lap nine constructors championships and seven drivers championships the last of those back in 1997 when Jacques Villeneuve was the driver's champion that season. I think, first and foremost, Courtney, what we've got to say is an incredible achievement 
for Williams, a, a dream that Sir Frank had many, many years ago, being involved in motorsport, to start this enterprise, this dynasty, this franchise that Williams Racing are. It's such a sad day to see that it's finally come to an end, or at least with them at the helm of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, they were pretty much the hallmark, generally speaking. They were the most consistent team, them and McLaren, around that time. And, yeah, it's just, it's sad, because it is, it's the, it's the end of a, of a long story, that they've, they've been a defining part of Formula One. And, yeah, like, I know they're gonna, it's gonna be nice to keep the Williams name, and, they have given up the reins of the team for the, the sake of the team for them to be more competitive. But Williams without the Williams, not quite the same, is it? No, it's certainly not going to be the same. But of course, we should reflect fondly on their proud history. As you've mentioned, they mm. were the dominant force back in the 80s and 90s for many of that time. They were the big team in Formula One. And, you know, the, the stats speak for themselves. The story of a, of a young man a businessman, making a team from scratch, not a manufacturer team as well, which wasn't the norm back in Formula 1. We had a lot of rich ent- rich people and business people putting in entries that sort of came and gone very, very quickly where the manufacturers remained. But Williams held on to that, like McLaren did, of course, we should mention, at the same sort of era. But Williams, they epitomised what was so good about re- Formula 1 and also British racing of Formula 1 as well. This is the fu- the last British-owned team, which now that's now changing hands. Of course, we've got such a history of British racing, but none of them compare to what Williams are. And I think on behalf of us here at the DNF1 F1 podcast, all that's left to say is that we wish Claire Williams and Sir Frank all the best in their future endeavours in Formula 1 and just thank them for yeah. everything that they've done. I mean, listing some of the drivers that they've helped put through I mean, we mentioned George Russell, a future star in the making. We've got, obviously, Nigel Mansell, Alain Prost, Jacques Villeneuve, world champions, Ayrton Senna, of course, the late Ayrton Senna, Nelson Piquet, Ricardo Petrezzi, so, uh, Keke Rosberg as well. So many great champions in that team. Oh, and Nico. Yes, Nico, and Nico Rosberg, yeah. of course, yeah, forget Nico. Jensen Button, so Ralph Schumacher, so many great drivers in that Williams team that have come through that one way or another. It's a team that has had such a proud history that only Ferrari can boast better numbers. But even then, it's just such a rich family environment where it's so many great people. And I'll tell you what, guys, if you ever go on a factory tour or any Formula One team, Williams is definitely one of the best ones to go to. I absolutely kid you not. And as I said, it's going to be such a shame to not have them in the Formula 1 paddock. And of course, their last win back in 2012, the Spanish Grand Prix, were Pastor Maldonado, the legend, the goat of all goats, Pastor Maldonado at the Williams team. I can't believe we almost forgot him, Courtney. Um, How could you forget Pastor? Could never forget Pastor Maldonado, the legend of all um, legends. I'd like to say a couple of things, though, yes. when it comes to Williams. You know, when you, when you mentioned a thank you, you know, I'd like to thank Williams as a, as a fan of the sport. You know, I'd like to thank them because... The impact they've made on the sport, because they are, you, you, you said it yourself, they're a big part of what has made the sport today. Some of the innovations that the Williams team have come up with, like I remember the, um, I remember it being mentioned about the active suspension in the early 90s, and it might sound nerdy, but these are these innovations, steps forward in technology that have helped the motorsport industry. Like, you can't, you can't underestimate 
you know, the work that these people have done have affected the motorsport and even the road car industries. You know, they've done big things for technology. So thank you for that. And also just looking back on some of the memories that we create, like particularly, you know, as a British fan, when you look at the, the moments with Nigel Mansell and Damon Hill, great moments. And, you know, they're not around anymore, but the memories stay and they, and they live on with the history of the sport. So thank, yeah, thank you, Williams, for being a big part of what Formula One is today. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. And uh, thanks for mentioning Damon Hill. Almost forgot Damon. So, uh, mm. 1996 world champion Damon Hill there. But yeah, absolutely right. They will be very much missed. But the Williams name does live on. The legacy lives on. And hopefully, brighter days will be forecasted for Williams in their future. They've got the right people. They've got the right factory facilities. Now they've got the investment. They just need to put it all together. And I'm absolutely certain they can keep that going. And I'm pretty sure this isn't the last that we've seen of Claire or Sir Frank in Formula One. And uh, we wish them all the best in their future endeavours, whatever they decide to do. So on that note, obviously a lovely tribute to uh, the Williams team and a fantastic race weekend that we've experienced. Of course, our next race in Mugello this time next weekend, we'll be doing our next dnf1 f1 podcast so make sure for those of you that haven't already make sure to like share and subscribe to this video if you're watching on youtube and also follow us on your favorite podcasting platform whatever it is you're listening to us we really appreciate your support and follow us on social media too that's dnf1 underscore podcast on twitter and instagram i should say and dnf1 f1 podcast on the youtube channel so all that's left to say is Thank you so much, Courtney, for once again joining me on co-hosting another episode of this DNF1 F1 podcast. And for the rest of you, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you in the next DNF1 F1 podcast. See you soon. Podcast Network.